everybody is uh, trying to find their seat and get organized. I'll run through the announcements. The annual congregational meeting will be held on Sunday, February the 4th, following the morning uh, worship service. That usually doesn't last too long. And we will uh, be covering the business of the church, and um, there may be a vote, and that will be for members. But if you're not a member, then that will still be an opportunity for you to find out about uh, the business side of the church. And then this uh, Saturday, we have our um, monthly uh, men's prayer breakfast at 7.30, and then uh, the deacons will meet at 9 o'clock. We're going to have a special speaker this week trying to get the word out uh, to some of the other uh, churches that we uh, cooperate with on several different things. And um, because we're going to have a special speaker, Ted Poe is a congressman for U.S. District 2. And he's been he's very conservative, and that sort of squiggles around the uh, west side of Houston and up towards the woodlands, and and uh, a lot of Spring Branch is part of that <clears throat> is part of that district as well. And he has had leukemia for the last two or three years, and so he has announced his retirement this year. So um, his seat is up for grabs, and there are nine people who have filed for that seat, and. Uh, <clears throat> there are a couple that are pretty conservative. One of them is Dan Crenshaw. He's a retired Navy lieutenant commander, and he was uh, uh, a SEAL, and uh, he is uh, re- very conservative. He will be um, speaking to us on Saturday morning. He's been on Fox and Friends uh, th- several times. He was on the front page of the Chronicle. I understand last week that one of the uh, <clears throat> retired astronauts endorsed him, and he's picked up several other other endorsements, and he's uh, he's solid. So come and listen to him. Now we may do this again with another um, person uh, running for that that seat uh, next month, just so we get informed on who these people are. Turned out this morning, I went down to the Avalon Cafe here with um, a couple of men in the church had breakfast this morning, and. I was sitting there, and we were talking, and there were some people sitting here and there in the restaurant, and so I really didn't pay too much attention to them, but this uh, man and a woman had been sitting over here, and the woman's back was toward me, but when they finished their business, and they're shuffling all their papers and putting their files back together and everything, she stood up and turned around. It was Kathleen Wall, who was also running for that seat, so I got up and went over and introduced myself to her and talked to her a little bit, and uh, uh, opening that opportunity to to get to know her a little more, and she seems, she's been endorsed by several very strong conservative groups. So you need to make sure that some of the conservative groups, though, are really conservative groups and not just in name only, because one of the men that is running, who's also a front runner, is a basically a very moderate Republican. He served in the Texas state legislature and did not <clears throat> uh, seem to be very uh, consistently conservative, more, more uh, establishment. So uh, that's what's going on there. So I would encourage the men to come out uh, Saturday morning, 7.30 for a good breakfast, and then we will uh, hear, from, from, uh, uh, hear from Dan Crenshaw. Then I think that is just about all we need to discuss there. The Israel trip, let me add something here for those of you. Some people are still considering the Israel trip and uh, signing up. We have 19 right now. I know that there's at least one couple in the church that's going to sign up within the next week or two. But due to uh, several people asking me if I would add an extension trip to Petra, We have done that, and we have 15 people who've signed up to go to Petra, 15 of the 19, I think that's what it is, or maybe, yeah, something around that. Um, And so that's going to be a good trip, and that will be tacked on at the end for uh, an additional fee for those those three days. And so that information is up on the website, isn't it, the Petra extension, Barb? Um, Don't know. Don't know. Okay, we'll get – we'll – We'll get that up. I'll send you the stuff on that. That was being worked out while I was in Kiev, and sometimes the time zone issues got in the way. So that's what's going on there. So with that, 
how shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Uh, Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so that you can take the opportunity to make sure you're in right relationship with the Lord, walking by the Spirit. And that means opportunity to confess sin if necessary in silent prayer. And after a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're so very grateful to come together and to study your word and to be refreshed, encouraged, strengthened, challenged, uh, receive the instruction of your word, and that God the Holy Spirit would make these things clear to us. Father, as we study throughout all of your word, we know that it all has uh, significance for our understanding, the formation of the thinking in our soul, although not all of it is is addressed directly to us in this church age dispensation. As we study in this section of Samuel, there are many things that are going on that are uh, significant in terms of your the outworking of your plan in the history of Israel, just a confirmation of your calling, your purpose, your plan for Israel that has not ended but has, still has a future. And Father, as we study these things today, help us to understand them, see some of the things that are illustrated here, and that God, the Holy Spirit, will open the eyes of our soul to the truth of your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, a couple of things I want to cover before we get into this. First of all, just thanks for the prayers while I was in Kiev. As most of you know, I go over there for uh, to teach for two weeks at the Word of God Bible College. I teach uh, two courses. It's a two-year curriculum. So one year I teach on rewards and judgments, and then the next year I teach on dispensations and covenants. So <clears throat> that is basically what I taught here uh, back in 2014. That was pretty much based on the the notes and the outline that we put together there, and my hope and prayers that we can get this turned into a book sooner or later. But uh, it went really well. There was a good group of students, and I thought I would show you a um, couple of pictures. We'll start here. Here's the group. Uh, This is the youngest guy on the far left, and his name was Vlad. And he is a, um, he's been a believer, grew up in a Christian home, which is unusual over there, been a believer since he was about five years old. And when he was uh, uh, probably 14 or 15, he said he thought that he wanted to be a pastor. And uh, he is uh, 20 years old, and so he is going through this training. And then you have another young couple right here. Um, this is uh, Oleg and his wife, Julia. And they're 24. They're the youngest in this group. It was really an older or more mature group this year. This couple in the back, she's here, and he's here, Vasya, and I can't remember her name right now. But they are, he's a retired uh, NCO in the Russian Army, and she's Ukrainian. So when he retired out of the Russian Army, they came to uh, Ukraine, and they moved to Lviv, which is what the Ukrainians prefer to call it rather than Lvov. And uh, Lvov is Russian, Lviv is Ukrainian. And uh, and the wet, that's in the far western part, almost in Poland. In fact, in World War II, it was in Poland before World War II. It was part of Poland. So they're very independent-minded. They hate the Russians. But they have found a home in a church there. They both became believers when they were in their 40s. Uh, They're around mid-50s now. He's 55. And he had never before heard anyone teach on dispensations. And so it opened up his eyes, and he just loved it. He was hanging on every single word. So that that really went well. This guy in the middle is Andre. He's a translator. He's been translating uh, four years now, so he's taught two cycles of both courses, and he's coming along quite well. 
and then uh, these are some. This is another married couple here on the on your far right, and then um, uh, two or three other students. So there were ten students in all. Uh, five, no, six were repeat, coming back from last year. So this was their second year. They'll be graduating this year. And four were uh, four were new students. So we need to pray for a good crop uh, of new students. The um, the place where the classroom is located was originally designed as a, what would it be, three, maybe three-bedroom uh, apartment. And it small kitchen, a couple of bathrooms, and it was converted into uh, a, an office space that was an office space for a political party, I believe. And then that was sold, and Jim was able to get that pro- close to 10 years ago. And so there are uh, two classrooms. There's a room for a, a, a lounge area where the students can sit and talk. And, and then there's a, a library with a number of uh, books, computer, things like that, where they, can, where they can study. This is the classroom. I usually sit uh, at a desk and uh, teach from there and project on the screen. I'm using Logos Bible software. You can't tell from where you're sitting but the top panel is the Russian text from the Russian synodal text, and then this lower left panel is the English, and then the other panel is either Greek or Hebrew. And they have all are studying Greek or Hebrew, so that's a point of commonality. I can read the English, but it's uh, <clears throat> connected with the Russian so that as I go change from verse to verse, the Russian automatically follows me. So that really works well in being able to uh, teach in a uh, bi-language, dual-language situation. So just some pictures of the, of the students and uh, the situation there. So it was, it was well-received, uh, well as always. The students, because they're a little older, ask more perceptive questions. It's interesting that when you're in a cross-cultural situation, that the questions that a Ukrainian asks about what you've taught are not the same questions that an American would ask. Americans have heard other things. They may have heard some, some challenges to dispensation, and so have they. But the challenges are different. So the questions are different. And it, it always is interesting, and sometimes they've heard other views there that don't uh, make the classroom here. So you will hear some different views. Well, I heard so, this pastor teach this or that taught. What about this view? And you're going, well, I never heard of that in my life. But let's look at what the Bible says. What passage is that based on? And then go look at the at the text. And so there's uh, the students, probably half of them have some facility in English. Uh, <clears throat> often they'll need a little help from the translator, but they can, uh, they can usually understand a little bit more. Uh, th- I think there were four that had no English whatsoever, so they're totally dependent upon, upon the translator. But it's important in cross-cultural situations that you have translators that know the theological framework that's being taught. Now think about that. Every now and then you get emails and you hear about someone who has got a ministry in some country and they are translating somebody's books into that target language. The question is, who's doing the translating? How well do they understand the theological language and the theological idioms that are used in that book? Because if the translator doesn't really understand the the nuances of the English and the theology in the English well enough to translate it, then you get gobbledygook that comes out the other end. And we, we talk so idiomatically that we're not f- aware of that. We have all heard the basic, uh, <clears throat> basic instruction about how man has fallen. We have fallen into sin. And we have heard that there are three 
problems. We are born condemned. We receive the condemnation of Adam's original sin, and we commit personal sins. Three things. Three strikes and you're out. Wait a minute. If you don't know baseball, that doesn't communicate at all. What about the term rebound that's been used for confession? That comes out of basketball. How many people in some primitive tribe on the backside of the Philippines understands anything about rebound or basketball? See, so many things that we don't even think about become apparent once you start teaching through a translator. And the worst-case scenario that we saw was when I went over with Jim and George Meisinger in 2000, and we went to uh, Kazakhstan, and half of the class, we had, I don't know, there were 100 people in there. Isn't that right, Pam? About 100 people in there, and they were split. Middle aisle, this side were Kazakh speakers. Some of them understood some Russian, but Kazakh was their native language. On this side were Russian speakers. So I had a Russian translator who had never translated for any of us. He had done some Christian translating before, but if you use technical terms like justification, redemption, propitiation, he was lost because he had never heard a Christian use those kind of terms before. Yeah. And then we had a lady who was the wife of the pastor there who was um, fluent in six or seven languages, and she was doing the Kazakh translating. But then she had to take a couple of the students down to the uh, consulate in order to get some of their uh, visa paperwork uh, straightened out. And so who was going to carry out the translation on the Kazakh side? Well, there was a Kazakh student. One, one of the students was, was <clears throat> bilingual in Russian and Kazakh, but he didn't know English. So I, I got a week. English translator over here, English to Russian, because he's weak on uh, theological vocabulary. And I'm trying to teach through some things about uh, salvation and the angelic conflict. So he is translating that into Russian. And then this guy is going to translate from his Russian into Kazakh, just to make sure that Everything is going to be communicated very clearly. The Kazakh Bible has only been had the New Testament translated. And we're talking about Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28 and the fall of Satan. And they've never read the Old Testament or, or heard of it. So it gets really interesting. Sometimes you just don't really know what's, what they're hearing and you just have to trust the Holy Spirit that somehow they're getting something, but you know that it's getting, you know, it becomes a little messed up along the way. So there's a lot to this, and I don't know, and Jim and I have talked about this a lot, how anyone can, trans, can have, because uh, I know some examples of this, where books that were written, in, you know, well-received books that were written here were translated by, by people in Belarus, Russian speakers, but they didn't know theology, they didn't know doctrine, and they translated those booklets into Russian. And um, later on, a lot of money was spent on that. And later on, those books were uh, evaluated by somebody who had been under Jim's ministry for a while and who understood doctrine and said all of those books were meaningless. They did not communicate anything because the translators didn't know the language. So I always I, I always have these questions. I read these missionary emails and missionary letters about XYZ ministry that we're going in here and we're translating all these materials. Really, what's your background? How much doctrine, how much Bible has that translator learned? How much do they understand about the nuances that go on? So a lot of mistakes can be made and you have to be very, very careful. And tr and that's what Jim has done is he's trained his translators. He's had his translators go through these courses and as students so that they can learn the theology, they can learn the doctrine, 
and uh, and go to his church. So that's that's very very important. <clears throat> One other thing I want to say about being gone. It's a little bit frustrating for me sometimes. And on the other side, I'm real proud of y'all because I know that we have guest speakers, and every now and then guest speakers will say things that aren't quite right. Even if they're pretty solid on most things, they say some things that aren't quite right. And I'm amazed how many of y'all will catch really good minutia, important minutia. And you'll email me or tell me and say, well, you know, this guy was pretty good, except he said this, this, and this. And he used this phrase, and that was a red flag, or used that phrase. Most congregations wouldn't catch any of that because they're not taught very well at any depth. And I'm glad that I get those reports from people because you, you learn something. And that's that's encouraging. Somebody actually has listened and assimilated it so that they can uh, evaluate it and they hear something and know it's questionable. So um, it's a challenge these days, and it's getting to be more and more of a challenge to find uh, good folks who can uh, substitute. But we are, uh, you know, I work with all of them. And uh, so when I catch things and I listen to everything, I was listening to what well, Albert did a great job. I listened to Albert um, one Sunday. The other Sunday, I, I was out eating dinner because when it's 1030 here, it's 530 there. Um, but I've listened to them. I've listened to all, all the other uh, sessions so that I've pointed out some things and have either had or will have some conversations along the way. So uh, I do try to <clears throat> keep the sheep from being snookered. All right, let's open our Bibles to Second Samuel chapter 2. And in this section, this is a difficult section to go through because it's, as I pointed out the last time, it's, it's this, this civil war that's going on in, in Israel and Judah between those who are the followers of Saul and those who are the followers of David. David has become king in Hebron. And for seven and a half years, he rules in Judah. And then we're going to learn that uh, at some point, Ishbosheth, who is the last surviving son of Saul, is crowned king in the north. And Ishbosheth is going to reign for two years. And then there's this civil war, and you get this duplicitous uh, relationship with Abner, who was not only Saul's uncle, so that would make him Ishbosheth's great uncle, but he is a uh, manipulator, and he is initially against the house of David and seeks to set up uh, an alternative king in the north, which would be Saul's son Ishbosheth, and this deteriorates rapidly into a very nasty and tragic uh, civil war, which then deteriorates into personal vendettas. And so there's some uh, tremendous lessons there on what happens when the sin nature is in control and how the lust patterns of the sin nature destroy uh, individuals, how they destroy marriages, how they destroy families, corporations, how they destroy nations. And we see that meltdown taking place uh, in Israel, and this is just a time of real, of real collapse. And what we'll see here is a battle called the Battle of the Sharp Swords, which takes place in in Gibeon. So what we see, though, is David, and I want to go back and I want to pick up and review a couple of things from the last time. We kind of rushed at the end, and it's been three weeks, and so we need to just take a little more time than normal to do do some review on the first seven seven um, verses, because as you work through this and you read through chapter 2, chapter 3, uh, chapter, and then get into chapter 4, we see the um, these murders, we see these assaults that are taking place, we see the uh, uh, civil war. We have to say, what is going on here? Why does God the Holy Spirit spend three chapters dealing with this civil war that's going on and this uh, intertribal 
these violence, these murders and, and vendettas that are taking place. What's being illustrated? Why do we need to know this? If all scripture is breathed out by God, we know that God is not wasting his breath telling us these things. So we have to think about it and reflect upon why is this here and why uh, why do we need to know this. So I'm going to get into a little bit of review. Let's just go over uh, the general structure of Second Samuel. In the first uh, basically 10 chapters, mostly chapter 2 through 10, we're going to see the rise of David. God blesses David and... Uh, he unites and expands the kingdom. And then in 2 Samuel 11 to 20, we see God's discipline on David for his sins, and David reaps the consequences. There's serious divine discipline that tears his family apart, and then it tears the kingdom apart in, a, in the Absalom revolt. And then there are six appendices at the end of the book that evidence the greatness of uh, the Davidic covenant and what God is doing in the life of David, and that's covered in Second Samuel chapters 21 to 24. So this first section, we see God explain, uh, blesses David, and he expands and unites the kingdom. That's David who does this expansion. We see God, this, the, that, the role of the sovereignty of God, and overseeing and controlling history, but not at the expense of human volition. So God is blessing David, but it's David's responsibility to lead and direct uh, the nation and to unite the nation and to solve those day-to-day problems under dependence upon God. And that's what's emphasized in those first seven verses is every time a problem comes up, David goes to God in prayer. Over and over again, he's always going to God in prayer. And that emphasizes what I'm pointing out in the um, title, it's grace. David is dependent upon God's grace to bring order and stability into the nation. And this is contrasted with what happens on the other side. And that really covers uh, so much of what's going on here from uh, chapter 2, verse 8 all the way down through chapter 4, is the instability in the northern kingdom, especially because of arrogance, because of rebellion against God, because of of power lust and approbation lust. And so that leads to fragmentation. Now, you have problems in the south, too, because you've got David always seems to have this albatross around his neck that is his nephew Joab. And Joab is the general of his army, and there's there's nothing in the text that indicates that he had an an ounce of positive volition or anything positive spiritually, and he's constantly doing things that create problems for David. And so we're going to see that, that David just can't fire him. He's his nephew. He can't fire him. He's a brilliant commander. He uh, brings David victories but yet he goes too far many times and such that when David is on his deathbed and the kingdom is going to shift to Solomon, he calls Solomon in in a scene that always reminds me of the, uh, of the Godfather. If you never saw the film or read the book, there's when uh, <clears throat> the Godfather, Don Vito Corleone, is, is dying and his son Michael is going to take over. He says... Now, Michael, you've got to get these guys. And so as soon as he dies, then he kills all the enemies of the, uh, of the family. And that's kind of what goes on here. So it's, uh, it's reality. It, it, these are the heroes. Some of them are the heroes of the faith, but they are portrayed in Scripture, sins and all, unlike any other religious book. So... Uh, we get into this uh, subdivision here. God's going to bless David in the first uh, part. It's the beginning of David's kingdom. And he moves to Hebron. And then he will graciously deal with those folks in Jabesh Gilead who have recovered the body of Saul and treated it uh, with respect. 
what we learn throughout this is David is not forcing the kingdom. He's not forcing the unification of the kingdom. He recognizes the principles I said last time that unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. This ought to be tattooed on the eyelids of every pastor. It's not the role of the pastor to build the church. It's not the role of the deacons to build the church. It's the role of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ said, on this rock, I will build my church. And the directions he gave to Peter was, you feed the sheep. That's the role of the pastors, to teach and feed and nourish uh, as an under-shepherd the sheep of Christ's pastor. And so it is not the job of the pastor to build churches. And I was ordained by Harry Leaf here in Houston. He was the pastor at the time of Tomball Bible Church. And Harry said, always remember this, Robbie, anybody who is good with business skills can build a huge organization, but that doesn't mean the Holy Spirit had anything to do with it. So it's better to have a church of 15 or 20 or 30 people who are positive than a church of 3,000 where you only have 10 or 15 people who are positive and the rest are unruly, rebellious sheep. So let the Lord build the house. Don't you do the, be the one to build it. You just feed the sheep. So that was always wise advice. Now, David is going to establish his kingdom in Hebron, and I pointed this out last time. And I had a couple of people that comment and say, well, you left out one of the most important things about Hebron, and that is that that's where the patriarchs are buried. And I said, no, I didn't miss that. I've actually been there. What I was emphasizing is why is Hebron important to Second Samuel? Why is it important in this context? Why is this important that David is making Hebron his his capital. It doesn't have anything to do with the fact that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are buried there. It has to do with other factors. So I pointed these out. Uh, David had distributed his spoil to the elders of Judah, and that included Hebron. So he is he, is, he has already blessed them. He's provided for them. He has uh, taken care of them. He's demonstrating that he is a good shepherd. He is a good leader taking care of his people. Second, it was the largest city of refuge in the region. Now, a city of refuge was where someone who was guilty of manslaughter could flee, and the uh, family of the victim could not seek vengeance on him. Now, that's going to come into play in this story because uh, that <clears throat> city of refuge law in the Mosaic law is going to be violated by Joab. Third, it's a Calebite city, uh, <clears throat> which means it's got a his- history of uh, positive uh, spiritual leadership. It's also a city that was set aside <clears throat> by Joshua for the Aaronic priesthood. So it's got a uh, again, a strong spiritual legacy, and it, uh, mil- as terms of a military value, it controlled the entire southern area of, of Judah, and it's on a hill, it's elevated, so it has military value. All of those things are, are significant. Now, here's our map. We need to be oriented to the map uh, here as we go forward. In the north is... is uh, the area known as Israel. These are the ten tribes up in the north. Down here you have the Dead Sea. Jerusalem is located uh, right about here. It's not on this map, but it's located about where the arrow is, 40 miles uh, due west of the northern tip of the Dead Sea. That's uh, on the border between Judah and um, Ephraim in the north, it actually was originally part of Benjamin's territory uh, right here. The area of Jabesh-Gilead, Gilead is this area to the uh, west or to the east of the Sea of Galilee where the Golan Heights are today. This is uh, an important area, and so Jabesh was a a city over here, and they were uh, many of them were related uh, to Benjamites due to an incident that happened in Judges uh, chapter 21, I believe. So this is this is an important area. Uh, it's not on the map, but this is Beit Shan right here, which is where Saul's body was. So this is up in this northern part. So that's the northern area. Judah's down here, and um, down right here is Hebron. 
So that orients you now. I'm going to hit the space bar. We're going to go to the next slide. It's going to just explode into a zoom in. So there we go. <clears throat> we zoomed in. Here's Hebron. Here's basically the border between northern tribes and southern tribes. And then uh, this is going to become the capital for a while while Ishbosheth is the king. And this is Mahanaim. So this is um, <clears throat> this gives you a little geographical understanding. Uh, you got two problems for most people when they read through this section is they don't know the geography. They don't spend a lot of time with maps, number one. Number two, there's a whole lot of new strange names that are brought out here, so we'll have to <clears throat> have to deal with that just just a little bit. I pointed out last time the men of Jabesh Gilead buried Saul. They treated Saul with kindness. Saul is the anointed, even though he was in rebellion against God. David always res respected the office, even though the politician may be uh, scuzzy, he may be a uh, criminal, he may be violating the Constitution, but unless that's proved in a court of law, just because you despise him uh, doesn't mean you can treat him with disrespect because the Scripture emphasizes that we're to respect the office, and if we're disrespectful of the office, even though the person in the office uh, may not be worthy of, of respect, that sets a pattern that shows a disrespect for authority, which is not authorized in the Scripture. So David is going to be uh, very kind. He's going to offer uh, as it were, an olive branch. He reaches out in an, an initiative of grace to the uh, men of uh, Jabesh-Gilead and says, You're blessed of the Lord, for you have shown this kindness to your Lord, to Saul, and have buried him. Emphasis, the word hesed there indicates a covenant-based love, and there's a covenant between king and his people, and it is translated faithfulness, mercy, love, uh, a range of words there, and we studied this the last time. And in um, verse 6, David goes on to say, And now may the Lord show kindness and truth to you. I will also repay to you this kindness. Now, I pointed this out last time. This word, the second use of kindness in English, is not translating the same word that you have here. The first use of kindness is chesed. The second use of kindness is this word down below, tovah, which simply means goodness. And <clears throat> so kindness and truth are, are emphasized here. May God deal with you in kindness and truth. Truth is always related to, with this word, emet, to that which is stable, that which provides stability, which comes from revelation. The root word for uh, truth the root word for belief, go back, it's the same root, go back to a word that has as its core meaning that which is unshakable, that which is stable, that which is immovable. It is used in a couple of passages in Chronicles to describe the foundation stone under the pillars of the temple, that they are unshakable. So when you think of faith, Faith is that which is unshakable. It's built on something that is certain about which you have uh, the conviction of truth based upon uh, evidence. Uh, you'll often hear uh, agnostic critics of Christianity define faith as believing that which is impossible. Uh, that is totally absurd. Uh, they believe their own words, which shows that it is uh, that they're, they have a, a logical fallacy embedded there. Everything is ultimately based upon faith, the, the assumption that man has the ability to reason to truth or the ability to properly interpret what they experience in terms of their senses. Everything ultimately comes down to, to faith. So it's what the object of faith is. Is it God's revelation? Is it your own perceptions, or is it your own thinking? What do you have uh, faith in? So we talked about this the last time that <clears throat> David said, the, may the Lord show, continue to show covenant faithfulness and truth to you. That's his faithfulness and revelation to you. And because God is doing that, David says, I will be good to you. 
I will repay you this goodness uh, because you have done this thing. And then I went through passages talking about uh, how mercy and truth are linked together in the Psalms. You have Psalm 2510, all the paths of the Lord are mercy, chesed, and truth, emmet. Psalm 26.3, for your loving kindness, that's chesed, and I have walked in your truth, emmet. Uh, Psalm 40, verse 10, I have not concealed your loving kindness, your chesed, and your truth, your emmet, from the great assembly. Psalm 40, verse 11, do not withhold your tender mercies from me, O Lord. Let your loving kindness, that's chesed, and your truth, emmet, continually preserve me. So these are linked together. Uh, in the scriptures, and that takes uh, that's an important thing to understand that God's faithfulness and his l- faithful loyalty and love is on this rock of his character, his emmet, his truth, which is also translated in some places faithfulness. Uh, those things go together, they are inseparably linked in the character of God. So we ran through these. And one of the things that I pointed out as we get into some other uses in, is that they relate to uh, God's uh, mercy, his forgiveness, uh, passages like um, uh, <clears throat> Genesis 19:19, 19, 19, which is from the mouth of, of Lot. So I pointed out last time talks about forgiveness. Uh, Exodus fifteen thirteen. you and your mercy have led forth the people whom you've redeemed. You've guided them in your strength, your holy habitation. And then in Exodus 20, verse 6, showing mercy to thousands who love me and keep my commandments. This has to do with forgiveness. And I went through a lot of these passages, Exodus 34, 6 and 7. Uh, God keeps mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression of sin to show that that what is part of God's grace and his loyal love is mercy, his forgiveness, his his love in action towards uh, even those who have disobeyed him. And now David is going to mirror that to the people in Jabesh-Gilead. This becomes a foundation of stability for Judah under, <clears throat> under Saul, I mean under David. In the north, they're having all kinds of crises. They're having crises because the Philistines destroyed the army under Saul. They killed Saul. They killed his sons, except for one who probably wasn't there, and that's Ishbosheth. And then what we're going to see is the Philistines dominated the northern area for the next five years. And so there was complete collapse of the culture and instability and the economy broke down and there was no no certainty as the enemy controlled uh, the northern part and there were just pockets, uh, pockets of resistance. And so David is going to come in based on grace, but he's got a problem. They're rebels in the north and they're operating on their sin nature, and they're operating on power lust and approbation lust, and the result is the whole thing just falls apart in a civil war for the next uh, two and a half years. So, Second <clears throat> Samuel chapter 2, verse, uh, verse 7. As David is finishing up what he is saying to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, he concludes by saying, Now, therefore, let your hands be strengthened, and be valiant, for your master Saul is dead, and also the house of Judah has anointed me uh, <clears throat> king over them. Now, what's going on here? What is happening in these verses, uh, in this verse? When David says, let your hands be strengthened, this often happens in passages that you read in Scripture. God, prayers, God, strengthen my hands. One of the things you learn if you take any kind of um, combat shooting courses, if you're in the military, if you're in law enforcement, if you're just a civilian and you go and you want to uh, develop some tactical shooting skills, uh, what you will learn is that when you are under fire, uh, you don't do so well. 
You know, you often wa- we, we watch these shows on TV and the bad guys are shooting, the good guys are shooting, and nobody's hitting anybody. Well, that happens in real life. Uh, I can't remember the exact incident, but there was a well-known uh, <clears throat> firefight that occurred in Florida with the FBI back in the 90s, and it was just an unbelievable amount of, of rounds were fired and nobody got hit. And the reason for that is when you get in a life-threatening situation, your body goes into a fight-or-flight response, and what happens is it shuts down. Your circulation goes to your core. It doesn't go to your extremities. And so what happens is you, when you're in fear, when you're in this kind of a situation, and, and, and guys in the military know this, you get in a firefight, suddenly you, you lose the dexterity in your fingers. You lose strength in your hands. I had one guy who was teaching a combat course who said that they, they hated using um, 1911s. That's a 45 automatic for those of you who don't know. They, there are three safeties on a, on a 1911, and one of the safeties is a grip safety, and that means you have to grip that handle hard, and there's got to be pressure against that grip safety or it won't fire. Well, when you're losing this, you don't have this manual dexterity because of the fight-or-flight syndrome, what happens is you grab your pistol, you don't have enough of a grip on there, and you can't fire. And what they would do when they were going on patrol is everybody would tape down their grip safety so that if they got into a firefight, they wouldn't have to worry about that. And there are a lot of little things like, like that that happen, and, and uh, guys will tell you these stories about how they, they get in a situation, and, and um, that's why one of the reasons Glocks have become uh, so popular is you don't have to use your thumb and cock the hammer back before you fire. Uh, if it, you already have a round in the chamber then uh, as soon as you grab it and pull the trigger, it's going to start firing because guys would go in with a revolver or where they had to cock the the hammer back and they couldn't do it because their hands are weak, because they're not getting blood flow and these things going on. So, So they recognize this. You can't grip a sword when you're in this kind of a, of a situation. And so there's this prayer that, that in a combat situation, your hands would be strengthened and you would have uh, great courage. And they were under this kind of situation because the Philistines were now in control of the north and they were going to have to deal with being an, a truly occupied country. So <clears throat> David is encouraging them. Now we're going to shift. First seven verses are all about David. And then the next verses start focusing on what's going on with those who are uh, resistant to David. So a resist movement to the executive power isn't something new. We've all heard about the deep state and the resist Trump nonsense. But you had a resist David movement that was going on here. And it was led by Abner, who was the former general of Saul. And so uh, he's introduced here, Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim. And he made him king over Gilead, over the Asherites, over Jezreel, over Ephraim, over Benjamin, and over all Israel. Now, you can tell me what all those places are, where they are, and who those people are, right? See, that's why I say you get start reading this, you don't know who, who or what or where is going on here. There's a lot of names to identify and a lot of places to identify, so we'll just start uh, with a couple of these. Abner is always referred to as the son of Ner. Actually, Av is father. Ner is, he's saying, my father is, is Ner. And so uh, he is actually uh, Saul's uh, cousin, Ner was Saul's uncle, and Abner is the commander of his army. So he has survived the tra- uh, tragedy at Mount Gilboa. He was the commander of the army. Saul is killed. Jonathan is killed. The other brothers are killed, except for Ishbosheth, who wasn't there. And Abner is able to uh, survive. So how did, was he able to escape? But he was able to escape. 
And so he is going to go to Saul's son that's left behind. And this is another really interesting situation because we don't know why he was left behind. Why wasn't he on the battlefield? And his name, Ish, is Hebrew, Ish. Some of you know this. In the, in, uh, the garden, you have Adam, who is a man, Ish. And initially, Eve is referred to as Isha, the feminine form of Ish. So Ish in Ishbaal means man, and Bosheth means shame. He's called man of shame. Now, that his mama didn't name him that because mothers don't give children names like that. In fact, he's, we'll, we'll get into this in a minute. He is given a different name at the beginning, and he's ca- called by a different name later on. These names indicate his character uh, transition, and he's 40 years old uh, when he began to reign. But what we have here is Abner and Ishbosheth are operating on powerless. They want to control the kingdom that was Saul's, and they want that power, and they want that recognition. And so what we're going to learn spiritually in this whole section is what happens when the sin nature controls. And so here we have our diagram of the sin nature. Uh, Sin nature is um, motivated at the very core by lust patterns, all kinds of lust. We We usually think of lust, we think of sexual lust, but there's all kinds of other lusts. There's money lust and materialism lust, and there's power lust, and there's uh, approbation lust, and there's all kinds of different deep-seated desires from our sin nature because we're trying to get what we think we need in order to make life work apart from God. And the sin nature produces in two areas. At the top, we have the area of strength. This is where we're not committing those things that we normally think of as sins. We're doing good things. And people say, you mean the sin nature can produce good? Yeah, the Pharisees did a lot of good. It was moral good. You look at a lot of uh, cults where people are probably not Christians at all, like Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons, and you think of about uh, a number of other world religions. People do good things. They do kind things. They do some uh, things that have great human virtue, but uh, they're not saved. They can only operate on one nature, and that's their fallen corrupt nature or their sin nature. So the sin nature can produce good, but it has no spiritual value as far as God's concerned. It's just relative good. Then you have personal sins. This is the area where we're weak and we react in mental attitude sins of anger and resentment and revenge motivation and uh, various uh, thought sins. And then it can result in sins of the tongue, gossip, and slander, uh, and we can and lies, or we can commit overt sins. And so uh, that's the personal sins. But we all trend toward one area, direction or another, either towards asceticism, and you know self righteousness, uh, legalism, and in other areas we go towards a an absence of morality, which is antinomianism, a licentiousness, and lasciviousness. So we, we tend to go towards either moral degeneracy like the Pharisees, or we go towards the immoral degeneracy of the priests of the fertility religions like Baal and Asherah. But at the core, we're driven by these lust patterns. Power lust and approbation lust are what's really highlighted in these, uh, this episode. As Ab- Abner is making a power play, he's not going to put himself in as the king, but he wants to be the one who controls the king and controls what's going on in the north. He wants to be the hero that unites uh, the northern kingdom. And then we're also going to see a reaction on the part of of, uh, Joab, who is David's general, because Abner is going to kill Joab's younger brother. And so Joab wants revenge. And so he is going to 
uh, take revenge on um, on Abner, and he's going to take him out. So you've got revenge and revenge motivation, all the things that make for a really good movie or a really good uh, uh, story. And it all plays out in the next few chapters. So what we see here in terms of our outline is that in uh, verses 8 through 11, we're going to see uh, Ishbosheth being crowned king over Israel, and he will reign for two years. Okay? And then we're going to see develop from verse 12 to 32. That's, the, that's a long section. We're going to see the development of this conflict between Abner and, uh, and Joab. So we'll just look at some of the key people that are brought out here. I've already talked a little bit about, about Abner. He's Saul's uncle. I think I said cousin earlier. He's uh, Saul's uh, um, so, excuse me, I, I mistyped that. That should be Saul's cousin. He's the general of his army. Uh, he is the son of Ner, who is Kish's brother. Kish is Saul's father. And uh, this tells us what's going on here. He's got this family loyalty going on that is superior to loyalty to God. And so he is placing that he's got misplaced loyalty to the family, but his real desire is to promote himself. And this just creates a fragmented, further fragments the situation in the north. Arrogance always leads to self-destruction. It polarizes people, often sets up an action and a reaction and a hostile reaction. And so he is going to do this, and he will take up Ish under his wing, and Ish is going to be willing to follow him because he's part of the family. But one of the things that's interesting, and then uh, uh, we have Ishbosheth, who's Saul's son. We'll talk about him in a minute. And then we have uh, Michal, who's Saul's daughter, and she had formerly been married to David. Then Saul took her away and married her to Paltiel, and now she's going to get sent back to to David. So that's what's going on on uh, on on one side. Then on the other side. Okay, I knew I was missing something. Okay, Ishbosheth. Now, Ishbosheth is Saul's sons. He's 40 years old when he begins to reign over Israel, and he reigns for two years. Anybody have any questions in your mind? How long does David reign in Hebron? Seven and a half years. Okay, so Saul is killed. At Gilboa, yeah, some of you are beginning to say, wait a minute, that doesn't fit. Saul's killed at Gilboa. David becomes king in Hebron right after that, and he reigns in Hebron for seven and a half years. But Abner goes and gets Ishbosheth and gets him crowned, but he only reigns reigns for two years. But David becomes king over all the tribes right after Ishbosheth dies. You see the problem? What happened to the other five and a half years in the north? You see, there's the Battle of Gilboa, but it seems to be five years before Ishbosheth becomes king. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us what's going on there. We have to read between the lines, and I don't mean that in sort of an esoteric way. I mean, what's going on here is you have the Philistines who are dominating in the north. And what you have is pockets of resistance, and the one person who seems to be pulling things together, who's still alive, is Abner. And finally, he gets enough of a resistance to the Philistines established to where he he can he needs a figurehead who can begin to bring uh, uh, to begin to unite the tribes in the north and pull them together. And so he focuses on Ishbosheth. Now, Ishbosheth is it's it's funny because when you see these list of names for Saul's sons, he's not in the first list. 
which is in 1 Samuel 14:49. The sons of Saul were Jonathan, Yishvi, Malkishua, and the names of his two daughters were the names of Mirab and the names of the younger Michal. Then later on, you're going to have a list of Saul's sons in 1 Chronicles, and the names are the same except this one, and it's not Yishvi anymore, it's Eshbaal. What's going on? Well, I think that we see something interesting going on that the Holy Spirit brings out in in the middle of this. He is initially called Ishvi. Now, that that last syllable is not sure what that means. It could be in the name Yahweh, which is how you'd pronounce the name of Yahweh, is Yahweh, that, that Vav at the end could mean that this is, he's saying a man of Yahweh. That could be a, a, a suffix that relates to the name of God. And so he's initially named he's a man of God, or it can just mean that he is a man, and emphasizing that he's, he's a good man, emphasizes this quality of, uh, of masculinity or leadership that's there at the very, very beginning when it's talking about him uh, in terms of this name. But later on, because of his failure, because of his uh, resistance to God's anointed on the throne, who is David, he has set himself up as an enemy of God. He has set himself up in opposition to the plan of God. So he's an embarrassment. So he is called a man of shame, Ishbosheth. So that becomes his nickname. See, See, people like Donald Trump aren't the only ones who who use nicknames uh, to make fun of their enemies. God does it a lot. And uh, it didn't start with Donald Trump's tweets. So he's he's making fun. The Holy Spirit makes fun of, of Ish that now he's become a man of shame. And what becomes even worse is by the time you get to First Chronicles 8.33, see, Ash and Ish, it's that opening vowel that's really the same. He now becomes a man of Baal. Who is Baal? Baal is a pagan god. So he is identified with the uh, enemy of Yahweh. And so these names indicate this transition that this guy's an embarrassment. He opposes God. He is opposing the plan of God. He opposes the man God has anointed to be king over, over Israel. On the other side, when we look at the names and everything, we've got David's team. David's team is composed of three major players and their brothers, and their mother, Zariah, they're always, uh, Joab is always called Joab, the son of Zariah. Who is Zariah? We studied this uh, a while back. Zariah is David's older sister. Remember, David's the run of the litter. He's got all these older brothers and sisters. She was probably the oldest sister. And so by the time um, uh, she got married, David was probably just born. So she got married and had a son about the same time that David was born. So that Joab is the same age as as David, and Joab is his is his nephew, and so Joab is um, uh, has two other brothers, Abishai and Azahel, and he's the youngest of the three, and he is a, a fast, uh, long distance runner, and that's going to get him in trouble, and so this is how this gets set up. And so uh, Abner makes um, Ishbosheth the king and establishes a new capital in Mahanaim. And so this is the map here. Mahanaim becomes the capital. All this, it, notice it's in the Transjordan. Why is it across the Jordan? Because the Philistines are controlling everything over here on the, in the uh, uh, <clears throat> mountains of Samaria, over here in the hill country of Samaria. And then Gibeon, which is where they're going to go, is right down on the border with Judah. And the reason they do this is he's got, if he's going to go anywhere, he's got to unite the tribes and reunite the country in opposition to David. And so that's what is uh, being set up in all of this. And it's in Second Samuel 10, uh, 2, 10 and 11 that we see this uh, conundrum over the dates that uh, Ishbosheth reigns two years. 
uh, only the house of Judah follows David. And the time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. So that's where we get this five-and-a-half-year discrepancy. And so that indicates that there was a turmoil in the north, total lack of stability. Why? Because of the carnality of Saul, because of the arrogance of the people, and they were defeated and under divine discipline, under the fourth cycle of discipline, because of their arrogance and because of their rejection of God. And so a culture cannot have stability if it's operating on pride and arrogance and rejection of God. So the solution to that problem is what we find in First, um, first Peter chapter 5, verses uh, 6 and 7, which says that uh, we are to uh, submit ourselves under the uh, authority of God, humble ourselves under the uh, authority of God, and he will uh, lift us up. And how do we submit ourselves? By casting all our care upon him because he cares for us. Now, who in this story is casting all their care upon him? That's David. He's constantly going to God in prayer. He is not operating on self-reliance and independence and autonomy. He is going to God, submitting himself to God, humbling himself under the mighty hand of God, and God will exalt him. Arrogance is self-destructive to a people, to a marriage, to a corporation, to a nation. And as long as we are in rebellion against God and arrogance, then the result is going to be fragmentation and self-destruction, which is exactly what we're going to see is taking place in the northern kingdom. Let's, uh, we'll come back and pick this up next week. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things and be reminded of your sovereignty as you oversaw the situation in, uh, in Israel and Judah and David's life, bringing him to the kingship. And you are the one actually working behind the scenes to bring unity to the nation. But you had spiritual lessons to teach, just as you do the same in our own lives. Father, we pray that you would uh, challenge us, open our eyes to see how we're arrogant and how our pride is self-destructive and our independence from you is self-destructive, that we may uh, learn to do what the Scripture says, and that is to submit ourselves, humble ourselves under your mighty hand. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.